You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Hello, Manufactured listeners. This episode is the second in a mini-series about decarbonization. In the first episode, which was released two weeks ago, my co-founder Jesse and I took a deep dive into one manufacturing company's decarbonization journey. We talked to Sid Amalian, head of sustainable business at MAS Holdings, a Sri Lankan manufacturing company with over 100,000 employees and operating across 50 facilities in 15 countries. We talked about their decision to sign up for science-based targets, how they set their target, the challenges they're facing in terms of achieving that target, and in general, what brands and retailers can do to support their suppliers with decarbonization targets. For this episode, I wanted to zoom out a little bit and share a conversation that brings together different levels of the supply chain. On the brand side, we have Jordan Nordarse of Boyish Jeans. On the mill side, we have Alberto Candiani of Candiani Denim. And on the cotton side, we have Crispin Argento of Sorcery. The conversation is an edited version of a webinar that I moderated for Transformers Foundation, where I also work, back in the spring of 2022. It's part of a webinar series run by Transformers Foundation called The Truth. I'll tell you more about both of these things in a moment, and of course there are relevant links in the show notes. In this conversation, we talk about which part of making a pair of jeans has the biggest impact on carbon emissions. Do we know? And if not, what would it take to know? We also talk about the possibilities and the role that companies operating in different parts of the denim supply chain can each take in reducing carbon emissions. And we talk about the limits. What challenges do companies face when it comes to reducing carbon emissions? Last thing before we dig in, if the name Candiani sounds familiar to you, that's because we took a deep dive into the company's story back in episodes 16 and 17. And if Crispin's name sounds familiar, that's because we also talked to him back on episodes 43 and 44 about direct-to-grower cotton sourcing and cotton traceability. So again, Candiani, that's episodes 16 and 17, and Crispin, that's episode 43 and 44. So be sure to go back and check those out if you're interested in hearing more. This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following along on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to Off the Beaten Path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Transformers. For those of you who don't know Transformers, Transformers is the unified voice representing the denim industry and its ideas for positive change. It was, we were founded to create a platform uh, to the jeans and denim supply chain and a central point of contact for consumers, brands, NGOs, and the media who want to learn more about ethics and sustainable innovation in the denim industry. This episode is part of our truth series Um, and uh, again for those joining for the first time this series was born out of a desire to decipher what is credible and what isn't and it's a series of episodes where we bring in top experts from around the world to investigate the facts and bring the truth to the table so check out our previous episodes on our website 
And today's episode is all about the topic of the day, reducing carbon emissions and stopping global warming. No small subject. And um, reducing carbon emissions in the denim supply chain and the fashion supply chain and in the world is really a collective goal. And what I mean by that is it only works if everyone does their part. And um, if one person fails or one entity fails, we all fail. And the reason I open this session with that is because ultimately what that means is that this is all about relationships and partnerships, which is why we wanted to structure this conversation and this episode today by bringing together different parts of the denim supply chain who represent different perspectives on this issue. Um, so without further ado, I want to enjoy introduce our guests today. We have, maybe you can just wave as I, as I uh, say your name. We have Crispin Argento, who's the Managing Director of Sorcery. And Sorcery is a transformative new approach to sourcing and procurement that goes direct to growers. So brands and retailers can buy direct from growers. And so needless to say, through his work with Sorcery, Crispin works with a lot of cotton growers. So that's the perspective that he will be bringing to this conversation today. Alberto Candiani of Candiani Denim. Hello. Um, Candiani is a denim mill operating in Italy for four generations already. They've recently launched Pareva, which is a compo com compostable stretched denim. And in addition to being a mill, they are also a cut and sew operation. Um, and then we have, last but not least, we have Jordan Nordarse, who is the creative director of Boyish Jeans, a denim brand focused on selling more sustainable jeans. Um, and he previously worked on denim projects for reformation. Let's talk about carbon emissions and the denim industry. Alberto, which part or parts of making a pair of jeans has the biggest impact on carbon emissions? And do we even know? Uh, yes, we do know. Um, but again, it's easy to speculate. I mean, we know that, um, you know, the um, most important raw material we use is cotton. So it is true, we have to go back to agriculture. And I'm glad we have Crispin here because there's a lot to talk, especially about regenerative practices and many other things related to cotton growing, for sure. But if I look at my own company and my own facility, the industrial facility, um, well, you did mention we are denim, uh, we're denim makers. So basically we're transforming the fibers into yarns, we're tying the yarns, weaving them, finishing them. And yes, we do have a very small cut and sew operation as much as we have a very small laundry, but that's super small. It's a micro factory type of thing. So that doesn't really count. So the, the, um, the denim operation, the, the, the weaving and the spinning in particular, um, they, they consume a lot of energy. Here in Italy, we have a funny word that describes companies like mine, and it's energivory, energivorous. So we eat lots of energy, and it is something that normally doesn't really get um, associated with uh, with textiles. You know, normally, you know, the steel companies or you know heavier sort of industries, uh, you you can define them as big energy consumers textiles also is in particular spinning and um and weaving um well 
it's actually great to have this conversation today for the simple reason that the energy cost is escalating to a point that, I mean, it, it, it's actually even dangerous to produce today. I mean, right now, the more we produce, uh, the more we lose. And this is actually happening. Uh, I mean, we're doing great at Candiani. We're overbooked probably. We're going 110% capacity. We just hired 85 people in order to increase spinning and weaving capacity. And the more we produce, the more we lose because we're not really able to put it on the price. You know, we would have to raise prices by 35%, which is totally unprecedented in our industry. Even though we are raising prices, but especially in Europe right now, the situation is not... Uh, under control so we have to get smart and we have to go for what I always define the, um, the the grandfather of sustainability which is a very very simple industrial purpose factor it's called efficiency so you just want to become more efficient and by becoming more efficient you try to consume less and you get smart because you don't want to pay those bills and so you're trying to generate energy in a different way um, for instance we use and consume quite a lot of water in the denning process so we just want to use water to create energy when it's possible and this is something which also requires in-house solutions so solutions which are not really provided by the suppliers we need to come up with our own solutions and for instance, we just invented our own turbines, which are actually uh, operated by the water discharge uh, from the dyeing division. Uh, we incremented the heating the, the heat exchangers, I believe you say in, uh, in, in English, uh, to a level that really maximizes the, the efficiency. And today we're looking again, seriously, into solar, uh, even though I... I give you, I just give you a number. I can actually cover 100,000 square meters with solar panels, but that would generate less than 10% of my total need. So when it comes to solar, unfortunately, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that solar can be a greenwashing operation, but till this very moment, it's been a market, a strong marketing operation and not really an industrial factor yet. But of course, with those costs, we, we're looking at that. Once again, uh, again, spinning and weaving in particular um, take a lot, a lot of energy. And I know that I'm not muted, right? I know that one of the other things Kendiani is investing a lot in also is the way that you source and what kind of cotton you're using. Um, can you speak a little bit to that and how that sort of forms part of your uh, approach in terms of thinking about your denim's impact on carbon emissions? Sure. Um, three, four years ago, uh, I had the impression that regenerative was going to become the new big buzzword. But interestingly, I found out there was no really, no real literature around regenerative practices. In the past three, four years, it developed in a very interesting way. Um, and we decided as Candiani to join uh, Control Union's Region Agri program for the simple reason we thought that it was actually providing the more accurate um, literature. Um, regenerative, and again, Crispin is not talking about it, I'm quite sure, doesn't necessarily mean organic. Um, regenerative practices uh, or regenerative uh, grown cotton 
uh, is there to, um, again, to maximize efficiency. So we're going back to the same purpose. And in this case, we're maximizing efficiency without interfering or trying not to interfere with biodiversity. So there's a way which is uh, partially holistic, but also very scientific to make um, um, cotton growing more efficient through regenerative practices. And yes, uh, we, have, uh, we have now started uh, to source regenerative cotton out of Brazil, again, uh, under the Region Agri uh, program and the Region Agri certificate. And we are helping them to expand um, their program into Europe, even into the United States, because we believe that is a very responsible thing to do. And it is something that the oil industry is now um, very, interested, very, very interested about. Jordan, I want to turn to you because as a brand, I'm curious, how do you, as a denim brand specifically, how do you guys approach this? And when you're looking at your total supply chain from grower through to when you receive a finished pair of jeans, how do you, I mean, do you feel like you have clear oversight as to where the biggest impact is? And also, um, you know, what, well, let, let's leave, let's leave it there for, to start and see where we go. <laughs> yeah. With us, we focus a lot on like life cycle assessments and also like other published reports that come from people doing scientific research to kind of tell us, you know, based on actual data that what are we doing and what's, what's the impact going to make and what decisions should we make from there. So a lot of what we try to do too is we try to limit the, the transportation of our supply chain to try to source everything locally, <clears throat> which is also where Alberto was talking about carbon offsets with local uh, ambition behind it which is really important because you know for instance if, if you can only create 10 percent solar power which is 10 percent still better than nothing but it's it's expensive and it raises the costs and at the end of the day if you're the only one doing it then it doesn't really impact it because then your product has to be more expensive uh, customers won't understand the value because it gets diluted by the time it goes from manufacturing all the way back to the actual customer uh, purchasing it from a brand and this is where the real stress comes from from a brand is because you know, it's price competition, you know, with, with our company, we try to source locally and, you know, we have a smaller uh, supply that we, that requires uh, based on our demand versus say, for instance, some of these larger companies that require a lot more resources. So on our end, we can maybe pick the most premium of, of uh, materials that have the best reports, but supply wise for bigger companies, they might not have that option. So on our end, we're, you know, because we're more boutique, um, our impact might be ridiculously lower than, than a larger brand, but they have to maybe find a better supply chain that requires a little bit more carbon. However, once again, it's the 10% aesthetic. If you're doing 10% better, that's better than right now where a lot of these big companies are maybe doing two, three, four, maybe 5% if they're lucky. So uh, I think it just comes down to baby steps and uh, trying to figure out that source and the least amount of carbon in your supply chain based on transportation and, and scientific data. Um, Alberto, if a consumer wanted to know for a specific product exactly what its carbon emissions contribution was at each step of the process, is there any way that they could know that right now? Um, not in this very moment. 
um, we are working on something. It's uh, it's software and hardware sort of platform, which is going to be ready next year, maybe in two years. I have to be honest with you, because right now, how to how to monitor for like literally each fabric we develop and then the transformation of that fabric into a pair of jeans and the wash and all of that really um, includes too many, too many, too many factors. What we are trying to develop at Candiani, at least we want to cover our part. So we want to, uh, we want to define, you know, the energy, energy consumption for each item we, we develop, but that is also very much related to the volumes we, uh, we produce of each single uh, item. And we don't have to forget one very simple thing. Denim is unfortunately the most popular fabric in the world and always being treated as a commodity or something like that. So it's, it's a volume-based type of fabric. In a way, the, le the less you produce, which became our speciality, you know, at Kanyani, we are, you know, we produce in Italy, we're kind of expensive and, you know, uh, many brands come to us for smaller quantities and the, the, the least you produce of each fabric, the, the least efficient you are. And so in, in a way you are expanding the energy you consume and probably you make your carbon footprint a little worse. Uh, again, it's not easy for us to quantify yet. We're working on it. And I think uh, Transformers as a foundation should also uh, develop something which goes in that direction, implementing the garment making and also also the washes. But it's going to happen, and it's not only Candiani. And many competitors are trying to do the same thing. Uh, life cycle assessment, in no way, are you know uh, defining the path. And uh, and this is obviously also this is also implying the the supply chain, in particular the farms. Crispin, is there anything you want to add? to this conversation so far? There's a lot that was covered. Um, I think the underlying theme here is, you know, Jordan, you touched on it and Alberto, you did as well, is how do we do it, right? Is we almost know what we need to do. The question becomes, how do we do it? Um, what makes sense from a commercial standpoint and um, from a business at a, at a brand level for a supplier? And then of course, you know, for the individual growers, the farmers that are producing the cotton, right? It comes down to a business case. And then what are those necessary and critical investments that we need to address these challenges? And how do we work together to, um, you know, overcome some of those commercial challenges so that we can have better sustainability outcomes? Um, and that I think is critical. I, I would say the answers to that are, you know, we need, a real allegiance to real data, primary supplier by supplier, farm by farm data to be able to drive real impact around GHGs, around water, around other types of impacts, negative impacts that, you know, impact the climate. But we're not there yet. Roberta, you mentioned that, you know, we have hypotheticals, we have LCAs, we have systems that um, tell a picture, tell a story, but they're often a snapshot in time. But in reality, we need a tool and a system that's a movie reel of impact. Um, and we need to have a realistic approach. I was just doing some research while you guys were talking. Candiani's facilities sit in Italy. Italy has 50% of its energy load is gas. 20% of it is uh, hydro because a lot of it is coming from the mountains coming out of the, the Alps. Um, conversely, 
India, that's the big denim producer, 50% of their energy input is coal. The other 20% is gas, et cetera, et cetera. So if you look at, there's no way an Indian supplier can compete with Tendiani. There's no way a farmer in Brazil can be benchmarked with a farmer in India or a farmer in Greece or elsewhere in the world. Um, and the same goes for you, Jordan. There's no way that you should be comparing yourself to a multinational. You're making tens of thousands, maybe millions of pairs of jeans, whereas multinationals are making tens of millions, hundreds of millions of pairs of jeans. And it just becomes, we have to have more, um, a truth to materials. It's a phrase that I borrow from Patagonia, but also an allegiance to data. And data will drive the financial investments that we need to actually move the needle on climate change and other impacts that um, are critical to not just sustainability, let's forget about sustainability, are critical to the very future of the textile industry needs to happen. That's the truth from my perspective. So I think we in won't a way- We will be able to operate, you know? <clears throat> this is the perfect segue because, and we're gonna come back, Crispin, I think one of the things you just touched on too is, and at Transformers, it's something we talk about a lot as well. You can read all about it in our cotton report last year. But, um, you know, context matters, you know, and uh, what makes sense in one context may not be what makes sense in another context. And we need to have a conversation about what's a just way to decide what each firm's contribution to these collective goals should be. But we're going to come back to that a little bit later on. Um, but the other thing that I want to push you on is you talked a lot about the business case and the business incentives for this. And I want to ask you, you know, if we, when we talk about the possibilities and what role a company can take in reducing carbon emissions, what incentives do you think there are or aren't for growers to reduce their carbon emissions or to shift into regenerative farming practices that would help sequester more, more carbon? And if those incentives are not in place, what's your take for what on what it would take to actually change that? Well, the, the incentives for farmers are the same as the incentives in the supply chain for suppliers. There's no difference. Alberto spoke to it. If he could do his wish list of things, he'd have to raise his prices by 32% or whatever it is that you said, or something to that effect. Um, it's the same thing for a lot of growers. Most growers are. I'm not going to say trapped, but they're beholden to a commodity system that does not recognize sustainability attributes as quality that would drive a higher price for that material or that fiber or mitigate their risk for adopting um, regenerative practices. Regenerative isn't just a practice adoption. It requires a very focused um, set of trainings that uh, fundamentally get a grower that um, doesn't understand maybe a lot of indigenous practices around regenerative agriculture from biodiversity to soil restoration to um, no-till is something that you often hear. A lot of farmers, when you say, oh, well, you no-till, and they look at you like you're, like you're mad, right? Um, um, you know, so it's the same things. It's that the, what we're seeing here, I think, whether you're a farmer or your supplier like Kendiani or the 20, 50,000 farmers in the world and the 23 million or suppliers, et cetera, is, is there's just a critical lack of investment to really move the needle. And we have to work together as an industry to move that needle. Um, and that's can what I that's push you, What do you mean? Can I push you on investment? Because one of the things that I am in this word and what you think it would take to get that, because one of the things I had a conversation with a supplier recently, 
Um, and the conversation was about, okay, access to financing is one part of the story, but even if financing was in place, you still have to somehow link it to payment terms or sourcing practices because the real financial risk for most of these supply chain actors is material purchasing. Yes, I think if you, let's just take a supplier, I think it's a little bit more, less, less complex than, than the financial picture of most farmers, particularly smallholders in places like India, Pakistan, China. Um, but let's take a supplier, right? Suppliers, and maybe Alberto, you can challenge me on this, is you've got, as a business, you have your working capital costs and you have your capital costs, right? You buy equipment that costs millions of dollars and you've got 10, 15 years to pay back that equipment right? Your working capital cost is your ability to pay your employees, to buy materials, to buy cotton, whatever it might be. And then that together kind of allows you to run your business effectively and efficiently. Um, one is tied to the cost of products. The other is a long-term cost that is built into the, the core foundations, the assets of the business. And so to, to, to make that simpler, uh, we need to be able to tie long-term investments in a new PV array, maybe you know, wind, maybe a new HVAC system, maybe a high efficiency boiler, things like that with how do I, um, uh, if I'm gonna make those investments as a supplier, how do I qualify for lower cost of working capital so I can recover that? Or how do I create partnerships with my brands and say, look, Pandiani, I'm gonna buy a million units from you for the next five years. And we're gonna have a baseline price of X dollars per FOB unit. And therefore, you can go to your bank and get that money to invest in some sort of upgrade for your facility or whatever, right? Now, this is the dream picture. It's the same thing at a farm. How do we get a farmer to adopt regenerative practices that requires training? It requires new seeds oftentimes. It requires equipment, expensive equipment to do, to do a no-till type of solution. It requires an, 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 a financial incentive to take on the risk of doing right. something different. So I'll digress, but like it, it, we have to recognize that we make these sustainability projections, but we don't follow them with actual action. Or we take these ambitions, but we don't follow them with action because we are trapped in the race to the bottom within this industry, but in, 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 in a broader context. I I want to give Alberto the, the chance. That's okay. <laughs> I want to give Alberto the chance to respond um, and to talk a little bit about within Candiani, how do you approach this and how, what's the kind of support that you have needed upstream to achieve some of the things that you have already mentioned you're doing? And also what kind of support are you giving downstream to the people that you are buying from to also work on this, uh, on this goal? Well, first of all, thank you, Crispin, because I would have said more or less the same things. But from my perspective, like the text and entrepreneur, I'd be terribly boring and negative. You just, you know, you drew a picture which is way nicer. I mean, in a nicer way. But yes, the thing is, um, we should be um, working together. I know what I'm saying is, you know, um, kind of banal, but. Um, what Crispin just mentioned, so basically the big brands, right, for instance, those guys that can actually commit to a million units, they should finally commit. And they, they, gotta, they gotta pick their battles, but they gotta stick to it, you know. Unfortunately, loyalty is not really um, the specialization of our industry, um, especially the big guys would literally kill you for 10 cents. Okay, so 
um, ideally, uh, and again, I believe the big brands are mostly responsible of what we're talking about. Ideally, they should commit uh, to a supplier in the first place, um, of course, not necessarily Kenyani, whoever, and walk with the supplier through this path. Because for the supplier, like Kenyani, it's kind of easy for us to go back to the farms, you know, uh, if we want, and we really want to connect the industrial apparatus with the agricultural apparatus. I think this is more or less what every single Danny maker is trying, is trying to do. Uh, we did it with, uh, with um, the region agri program. And again, that is our biggest commitment. We, we want to help Control Union to expand it. We want more mills, more competitors to join because we believe that could really make a big difference. So we want to inspire, we want to share what we've done uh, because we do believe that, again, the, uh, the connection between the industrial and agricultural apparatus um, through transparency, uh, again, not through marketing, but through transparency can become um, the new, um, a, a, a new sort of language in a way. I, I'm going to explain to you um, the concept just by saying that, of course, brands and designers are looking for, you know, novelties and, you know, uh, different aesthetics, a new type of shade or a new type of yarn, but mostly they're now interested in compositions, ingredients, and where those ingredients come from and how you made that fabric better and better. What's the evolution behind the fabric? Why is the new fabric better than the previous one? So they're basically more interested in the sustainable features uh, instead you know the, the the aesthetics or sometimes even the performance sort of qualities um unfortunately the, the very big brands are mostly interested in the storytelling so if we're now only focusing on storytelling and we're not going in, into the details into the science into the rnt into i mean what is really connecting the industrial and agricultural apparatus and we just you know take like something like regenerative agriculture and make it the new organic cotton, I think nothing is really going to happen. Nothing. So I, I think that's a perfect handoff to Jordan then, because as somebody who is at the brand level in the supply chain and isn't making product directly, I think my question for you is how do you ensure that your suppliers are incentivized to reduce their carbon emissions? Oh. I, my power is no different than a scratch on the surface because you know it's it's everybody's saying it right here. It's numbers. The big players are the ones that guide the market, and the foundation of change comes down to profitability, which I know was talked about uh, earlier about you know PNLs being uh, supported by eco uh, you know initiatives. However, the real the real issue is we're not fighting people actually want people want to change. It's just, once again, it's the action behind it. And it's not, we're, it's, it's physics and, you know, the, the force that we're trying to push in life, and we can tell this all the way back to, you know, the religious dark ages and stuff like that, there's going to be an equal force pushing back. And sometimes that force will push back even harder. And what we're talking about is we're talking about corporate businesses trying to keep things non-organic, keep things GMO, keep things with pesticides, herbicides, insecticides. They want those things. People selling the seeds, they're selling the chemicals. They're saying, you need this, you need that. It's all subsidized. I bet, well, I want, I don't eat meat. I know why I do, but I mean, I'm just saying, I don't eat, if I'm a vegan and I don't eat meat, I still pay for meat. 
with my taxes because we are subsidizing people that have power and they use that power and they lobby. So once again, it's the infrastructure of how people interact and the sociological perspective and the psychological perspective that gets connected into the economics of it all. And if we don't want to slow GDP growth, but you know, we want to still produce product, then we need to think about output. And switching over to organic and regenerative doesn't really increase output efficiency. So there is a lot of things here that we need to figure out because that's what farmers get scared. They say, well, you know, I, I have things, things are working right now. I don't want to take a risk. So if I take yeah. a risk, the, the, my farm's going to be taken. And, and uh, that's really the fundamental of, of oh. change is the risk of, of, of failure. Yeah, Crispin, a minute. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'll be, I'll be very quickly. I think that I think what we're getting to here is that, you know, a lot of brands, whether large or small, we've built a system where brands can just go to the, the grocery store of the global supply chain and they expect that their products that are on the shelves are there in abundance and are already ready and suited for their needs, right? Because of their practices, their business models, et cetera. Right? We look at the Shanes and et cetera of the world, right? They, they go to that, gro that global grocery store as much as the boyish genes do of the world. And I think that there's, um, there needs to be just, again, I go back, it, it comes down to investment and it comes down to shared responsibility, shared risk and shared reward. And you know, if you look at sustainability in the fashion space, this is not a criticism of a lot of my friends at NGOs, but it's largely driven by philanthropic money. We built sorcery, and that's not a plug for sorcery. We will not take any philanthropic money. All of the impact that we do at the farm is driven by commercial drivers, and the cost of sustainability is built into the price of the fiber. And it's very clear to people. And I think that's allowed us to scale so rapidly because it's just, it, it, it's trade. It's not, it's not subsidies. It's not um, philanthropy. It's trade. And the trade is the true cost of what fibers cost, the true cost of what a sustainable pair of jeans uh, yeah. cost at a Candiani versus another supplier that's not doing nearly as much as Candiani does for yeah. its facilities and for its workers, et cetera. So it, it comes down to that. I think that I want to wrap this section up and move on to the next one because there's just, we could go on, we could go on for a long time on these topics. But I think for me, what I take away too is, you know, when we talk about like, you know, the right incentives have to be in place at each step of the supply chain. And really what that means is addressing the risk profile of each entity along the way. And, you know, when we're talking about, you know, okay, Boyish is, is a smaller company, but when we're talking about the big brands, what we really need to be talking about too, is how are they addressing that? And what is, is the, is the distribution of financial risk and reward equitable relative to the margins at each step of the chain? Um, I, this was supposed to be about possibilities. We ended up talking quite a bit about limits, um, but uh, we're going to officially talk about limits now. And Alberto, I want to uh, put the, give you the mic. Um, I've heard some suppliers say things like, I have limited financial resources. I could invest in solar panels, but it will only have the collective impact we need it to have if everyone else does it too. So should I be future-proofing my business by investing in solar panels, or should I be future-proofing my business for a world that's two or more degrees hotter? And I just want to get your reaction on this and whether this is something that you also debate as you make decisions about what you are or aren't going to invest in. As I did mention this earlier, I mean, solar in our case wasn't really a solution. It was a very partial solution 
Um, today, I believe we are all expecting uh, technology to develop even further, but we're also uh, expecting incentives from the governments. And this is something else. I mean, especially in a moment like, oh, sorry. Um, uh, in a moment like this, uh, with the energy cars being out of control, I think we should finally approach um, um, more institutional sort of um, incentives. Um, again, I don't want to go back to the previous conversation, but just to give an example and to make things practical, when it comes to incentives, I mean, together with the, the, the Brazilian supplier we picked to develop the regional agri program, we committed to a three years program. So we committed to a thousand tons this year, 2000 tons next year, 3000 tons the year after. We consume roughly 14,000 tons a year. And in three years, 3000 tons will be regenerative from that farmer. And yes, the trade of course is regulated by traders, but we do correspond a little premium to that guy directly. So this is something my competitors don't wanna do. Nobody wants to do that, but you have to accept that sometimes you have to put your hands in your pocket and somehow finance what cannot be uh, otherwise uh, sustained by the common uh, dynamics of our industry, which is pretty much based on try to pay less, try to pay less, try to go cheaper, try to go cheaper. But guess what? When you go cheaper, you go worse. I haven't seen a single yard of denim fabric that costs nothing, which which is cleaner there than 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 the, than the yard of denim that costs whatever it costs, but comes with uh, with innovation. Uh, we we've been talking a lot about sustainable innovation, and I believe there's no innovation which is not truly sustainable today, and there's no sustainability without innovation. So I, I see most of the industry a little stuck right, stuck right now because to go for true sustainable innovation, uh, you, you, you require to invest a lot of money. And those money normally come from your own pockets and they don't really come from, uh, from incentives. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a more macro question, um, Alberto, but also Crispin, I think, and Jordan, of course, you can jump in as well. But... You know, one of the things I've, I've uh, heard another supplier say to me recently is, um, and this was a totally not denim and not in Italy, but what they were saying is, you know, we are being as a, uh, they were also a mill, but they were like, you know, we are, we are being forced to go into energy politics. And that is also something that we don't really know anything about and are not experts in. And so you've shared a little bit just now about at the firm level, but I'm curious your take on sort of at a more macro level. I mean, Crispin mentioned this as well when he, when he gave the breakdown of where power and energy comes from in, in Italy, but like, you know, what do we do about that? And connected to that, Crispin, for you, we touched on this already as well, but, you know, cotton is grown in all kinds of contexts in all kinds of ways. And the work that it would take for one grower to reduce its emissions by whatever percent is not the same as for another grower in another context. And so what's sort of like, again, at a macro level, what's a just way to decide what a company's contribution to these collective goals should, should be? Um, Alberto, I let you go first. 
Well, it's very simple. Again, here the context really matters. We're located in Italy, in Europe. Um, actually, we're located in a nature reserve, you know, the Parco del Ticino, which happens to be the first institution we refer to when it comes to environmental issues. So we are performing in a very, very uh, delicate environment. So, and our capability of adaptation basically made us who we are because the rules and the regulations are super strict. So we have to perform in a very specific way. And I'm proud of my company because we managed you know, to, to evolve around such a very specific, um, inside a very specific um, environment. Um, so yes, I, I totally agree with Chris Payne. It's not even easy to make comparison between between denim makers, even garment makers, or you know, um, farmers. It, it is pretty much is pretty much impossible. Um, what you you should be able to define is who's cutting corners and who's doing the right thing and who's trying to change things, you know. I believe as Candiani, we, we, we're pretty good at trying to change things. We, we don't always achieve our accomplishments, but we're always trying to change things. As, as I said, um, we, we specialize in innovation and, and innovation can only be uh, sustainable today as much as sustainability can only be uh, in, innovative. Problem is how to, to showcase, um, not really to showcase, how to prove those um, improvements, you know, um, we're working on traceability tools, we're working on transparency tools, which cannot be corrupted in order to make that difference tangible, visible, in order to justify the reason why Candiani is a little more expensive. And not just because we're in Italy, and not just because our labor costs 32%, uh, but why, why we're doing a good job, how we're doing it. And again, uh, it's, about, it's about proving things and most of the industry is not really interested in proving nothing because they just don't want to show what they do or the way they do it or even where they do it sometimes so yes the context becomes very very relevant Crispin. look i think context again if, if we're gonna have a theme is important but context is shaped by data at the end of the day right we don't have a system in this industry not let alone most industries don't have a harmonized system with fixed boundaries, accepted methodologies to collect data in a way that is primary, that allows even a supplier like Candiani to benchmark his performance of all his facilities and then change those performances over time. Now that does exist in the building space. We have DHT protocol, we have certain things. When it comes to the farm, there's nothing that's like that. Um, um, you know, and so we need that again. It's a it's an allegiance to good data, um, to to be able to measure apples to apples versus apples to bananas that we have now. Um, when we have a good data system, then Kendiani can measure his own performance against himself, and then he can measure himself against performance of other denim mills in Italy. And then from there, it basically just stops, right? Until until we can we can start to look at okay, well, what is the Italian government or the EU doing in terms of energy and its mixture of gas, hydro, electric, solar, renewable, whatever it is, right? That is then your responsibility, your sphere of responsibility stops. Your ability to influence stops at that level. It's the same thing with a farmer. A farmer needs to understand how his, his farm is performing currently 
benchmark against that performance of that of his own practice adoption, and then can start to be benchmarked against peers within his regions where everything else is the same. And that's it. And, and, and that we get the right context to then be able to make decisions, allocate finance and solve these problems. But until we have data, we're just pretending. And, and also to have these also, I think, questions that are more about justice as well, which is what should, what, what's, a, what's a fair way, what's a just way to, to decide what, you know, different entities' contributions could or should be. Um, I'm conscious of time. Uh, Jordan, I want to, I want to give, well, I want to give each of you a minute to put forward your final call to action, your last plea, your takeaway message. Um, and Jordan, I'll start with you. Cool. Yeah. So I just wanted to touch on a subject real quick, kind of that goes across a lot of these questions that we had, which really comes down to earlier, you know, because we've all, we've had a lot of negative atmospheres, but things are going to change. And that's the one thing, that's the one constant and, and, and people just need to accept it. It's difficult because farmers aren't maybe, you know, sometimes some of these farmers aren't as educated. The big farmers are obviously more educated. Uh, they have profit. Once again, profit is nice and sweet, you know, so they're having to make that transition uh, into something that's not going to be as profitable. But in this regard, though, there's ways around it. For instance, things are going to get warmer. Agrivoltaics are a great way to subsidize both growing cotton and then have solar panels above it to, you know, offset a little bit of, you know, not, not necessarily eco, but profitability. So that you can actually, you know, combine, you know, a lower output cotton using regenerative also utilizing agrivoltaics by producing solar power and selling to the grid. And then also on top of that, you know, as weather changes, as the 1.5 you know, degrees Celsius increases, utilizing regenerative then traps moisture, traps water, helps put water back into aquifers. All those things are going to help in that transition while also at the same point in time, adding power to the grid. This is where it comes to the collaboration atmosphere. And this is where the governments need to come in and be like, all right, we've utilized this practice. This seems like it's going to work. Let's start teaching people. Let's start putting out uh, money out there, you know, low interest loans, you know, long-term for these people to learn. And then let's make sure they have to report back. What are your efficiency yields? What are you seeing? Where are your problems? So we can all identify these things and solve them together. Hey, um, Alberto. I let you go next. A minute. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Um, as a matter of fact, we're living, you know, very negative days. Reason why this whole conversation may sound a little negative, you know, the the energy crisis, which is now uh, made worse and worse by the by the war and um, and and you know and the. Um, and the awareness that things are gonna change now, because once again, we need to adapt to a new environment. And as humans, I mean, we got a little lazy. We haven't done really great things in the past few years, unless we're challenged by very, very serious shit, like the one which is happening. So let, let's try to, to, to make uh, the change. And I know that mo many people in the industry, they just don't like the change for the reasons that Jordan and Chris been, uh, described earlier. But I think we have no choice now. And I think who's not going to participate, who's not going to um, you know, be part of this change will, will probably get lost. Yes, indeed. And Crispin, a minute. But then sure. we'll open up to uh, Q&A. 
Yeah, I think uh, very simply, collaboration is the key. Jordan, you you spoke to it. Uh, Alberto, you did as well. Um, collaboration or partnership is actually about shared risk and shared reward. And you know, if you go into business with somebody, that's what you you go on that journey together with them. And the brand's risk is the supplier's risk, and the supplier's risk is the farmer's risk, and it's also their opportunity. And we need to understand that more to address these critical issues in the supply chain. And I think, you know, that takes education and, and awareness building, but it also requires, um, it also just requires a new way of working and a new thinking that, 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 that will be better off for the supply chain and the brands and the farmers in the future. And I know I'm being vague, but it, it really is about shared risk and shared reward. I, I can speak to dozens of stories that we've had here at Sorcery um, around that. One example is, you know, we have a client that makes sheets. They need 60 count yarns. We use the waste of that sheets to make their towels. The cost of the cotton for their towels doesn't cost them a thing. They buy the cotton themselves. Beautiful. Suppliers happy, spinners happy, everybody's happy. But that's shared risk, shared reward. So that's the type of stuff that I think is is powerful when you understand the realities of the trade and you can find the white space to solve problems together. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. 